0: If you would, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 20. I do recognize that we have lots of folks visiting with us today, and I just want to say again, welcome. We're happy to have you with us. We have been uh, considering the Gospel of John in a consecutive series, so we started in John chapter 1 several weeks ago, and we have worked our way up to John chapter 5. However, before we go to John chapter 5, I want to uh, refresh our memories of the, uh, this very critical verse in John chapter 20 where uh, the writer of the Gospel of John gives us to a very high degree his purpose for writing this book, for recording these signs. By the way, the signs that he's going to mention in John 20... The signs is a reference to miracles. And I'd like you to keep in mind that as the Gospel of John is is laid out to us and various miracles are presented, miracles that the Lord Jesus conducted, they were not just miracles to wow the crowds. Uh, They were not just miracles to gain popularity. They certainly were not miracles to... Gain revenue to profit a pocket? None of that. So the writer of the Gospel of John calls them signs. And we know, even from our common language today, that signs have a purpose, right? The miracles were signs. They had a purpose. The purpose was to point to something or to reveal something. That's what signs do, right? If you're heading down the road and you see a sign that has an arrow that bends this way, you know that it's communicating something to you, that the road bends to the left. There's a communication being done there. Well, the signs, which are the miracles, which there are seven of them recorded in the Gospel of John. Mind you, there are lots of others recorded in the other Gospels. They are called signs because they're going to point you to something. God forbid that anyone would be here today or anyone would consider the signs, the miracles, of the gospel of John and not recognize that they're pointing to something. These are not just there for the fun of it. They're not just good stories. We're going to consider one in John chapter 5 today in the will of the Lord. That is one of the most well-known stories, that man that's healed by the pool of Bethesda. The children love this story. I heard it in Sunday school growing up. But it's not just there as a story. It really did happen, and it had a purpose The purpose was to reveal that this man, Jesus the Christ, was indeed God the Son. This is the purpose. So let's read John chapter 20 and verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written... That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God or God, the son, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's given us at least two purposes there as to why he recorded these miracles of Jesus. Why do we have this detailed account of somebody's life that I know of? Nobody's going to write a detailed account of my life certainly not the detail that the Lord Jesus gets, but these men took it upon themselves, specific to the Gospel of John today, to record for us various events and the life of a man. This man was Jesus. And the purpose of it is that you and I and everyone else who would read would believe that this man, Jesus, is God the Son. And that in believing you would have life in His name. This is the promise of Jesus. We're going to see it in John chapter 5. That by believing on Him, by putting your trust in Him, you would have life in His name. So go back to John chapter 5, please. John chapter 5. And if there is a... If I had to put, I should say, if I had to put a main theme to John chapter 5, it's there on the screen. This would be it. If I had to put it into four words, a main theme, there's lots of things in here, don't get me wrong. But if I had to consolidate it to a main theme, this would be the main theme, the revelation of God. And it's consistent with the whole of the book of the Gospel of John, and it's consistent with John 20, verse 30 and 31, which tell us that this is the purpose why the book was written, to reveal God in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, If you would flip, I've got one other slide. This is a very simple PowerPoint. If you would flip it to the next one. Okay. Um, We're going to consider, I've got an outline here. You can take it or leave it. If you like it, good. If you don't, don't worry about it it does help me in my mind to lay out the chapter. So I've got five things that we're going to consider. The occasion in verse 1 to 15, you could say the occasion for the revelation of God. Then in verses 16 to 18, the provocation for the revelation of God. Then in verse 19 to 30, the explanation or for that matter, the revelation itself, the explanation of the revelation of God. And then in verse 31 to 40, the verification for the revelation of God, that is to say, Jesus is going to lay out to us, this is who God is. I am God the Son. I know God the Father. We're in a love relationship. We do all things in unity and harmony. And no doubt there were some there that day that would say, how do we know that's true? Well, that's the verification. How do we know anything's true? Examine the evidence right? That's how we know whether things are true or not here today. Examine the evidence, the verification, and then the verification, he'll lay out five specific witnesses that verify that what he's revealed is true. And then finally, with this mountain of truth concerning the revelation of God, there's a stern accusation that comes from it because friends, God has been revealed and the person of Jesus Christ and for those that will reject him turn their face from him say I will not have this man to rule over me away with him. We heard that this morning already crucify him crucify him. That's what the people of that day did and for those that will do that and perhaps there may be some here today. I don't know that have never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ God the Son, but if you will do that, if that is you, there is a severe accusation. And that's what Jesus lays out at the end of John chapter 5. Let me give you one other very quick outline, because we could boil this down to even less than that, okay? And I'm doing this because this is a big text of Scripture, 47 verses, so I don't want you to get lost in it. But it could be laid out as simply as this. The beginning of the chapter is the setting for the message. The middle of the chapter is the speaking of the message. And then the end of the chapter is the substantiation for the message. It's that simple. The Lord Jesus is going to do something to set up basically an audience to speak a message. And then he's going to substantiate the message. He's going to give verification as to how they would know that this message is true. So I want to read the chapter together. I will read it for you. And I'd ask that you follow along, and perhaps you can follow along some with this outline again later in your own study. If you want to ditch it, you can ditch it, no problem. But for this morning, this is what we'll work off of. John chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel went down at a certain time. Let me pause here for one moment. Some of your translations may not have what I have in verse 4. There is some... A question as to the authenticity of this particular verse. There are very few places in the New Testament where the manuscripts do not agree. And this is one of them. Very few. And as you'll see, it has little effect on the story, but just in case you're reading from an NIV or an ESV, I believe, you will not have verse four. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in after the water, after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had verse 5 we should all uh, be together now now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years when jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time he said to him do you want to be made well the sick man uh, said to, the, the sick man answered him sir i have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up but While I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Side note. There are some places in Scripture where you're allowed to chuckle a little bit, You're allowed to laugh. This would be one of them. If you want to laugh a little, you feel free to do so. The man was told, rise, take up your bed and walk. Immediately the man was made well. Verse 9, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus... (laughs) and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does. The son also does in like manner for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them. Even so, the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He, that's John, was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But... I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Our Father, as we open your word together, we do ask that you would bless and help. Pray that you would lead us by your spirit. Pray that your words would be spoken. We pray that you would help us to understand your word, to apply your word. We do commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we're introduced here to here is a specific miracle that was used for a specific purpose. John chapter 5 and verse 1 says, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He was previously in Galilee. This is what uh, the religious Jews did when there was a feast, as there were several throughout the year. The males would go up to Jerusalem to participate. It says in verse 2, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. It is interesting to note that for quite an extended period of time, the authenticity or the, the, the truthfulness of this pool was questioned. For actually centuries, the pool of Bethesda, as it's recorded in John, had not been excavated. And many, many supposed that maybe it was uh, allegorical, that maybe John wrote this and it was to picture the five books of, of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But in recent times, in the, 19, in the beginning of the 1900s, this pool was excavated. And it was found, indeed, that there is a pool in Bethesda, which has five porches, just like the scripture says. One interesting thing to note, and I'm going to throw this out there for you who like Bible study. Something that came to my mind, and keep in mind that we've been working through John 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Each of the chapters in the Gospel of John up to this point say something about water. Here we're introduced to the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 1, we hear of water when uh when John says, uh, John the Baptist says in John 1:33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 2, and again, I'm just throwing this out there. This is not the main point, but if you like uh, Bible study, I found this quite interesting. John chapter 2, we have the story of the water being turned into wine. John chapter 3, we have a reference in John chapter 3 and verse 5, which says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John chapter 4, perhaps the most well-known water account that I'm aware of, the Lord Jesus comes to a well. He asks for a drink of water from a lady that's there. He gets into a dialogue with her. And I can't get into all of it, but listen to these words. Jesus said in John 4:13, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And then John chapter 5, we have this poor man that we just read about lying by a pool of water, waiting for the stirring of the water with hopes of receiving some healing. So what's the point? Well, I'm throwing it out there for you to think about, but I want to give you one possibility. Water is in every culture the very basic and greatest need of man, right? You, You can live a little while without food Uh, You can live perhaps a long while without medical care and so forth and so on. But when it comes to water, that's the most basic and greatest need of man. But in each of the chapters of John 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, we have water presented and there's something that goes beyond water. That is to say beyond the most basic and greatest need of man. You think you need to be baptized with water? Here's one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You want joy, John chapter 2? Here, try a little bit of this water. See how that does for you. John chapter 3, born of water, good. But what about born of the Spirit? If you're not born of the Spirit, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Are you thirsty, John chapter 4? Unsatisfied. Drink of the water that I will give you. You will never thirst again. John chapter 5, we have a man, helpless and hopeless, waiting for the stirring of the water by the pool of Bethesda, the house of mercy, and here stands in front of him the God of mercy who could actually heal him. Water, the most basic and greatest need of man. But each time the Lord Jesus would go beyond this to show that there's something greater, friends, something greater than the physical, than the here and now. When we look at the miracle in John chapter five, I don't want you to miss this. Friends, today's sermon is not a healing sermon in that sense. Or if you want to say it's a healing sermon, it's a spiritually healing sermon This is not about physical healing, but about spiritual healing. In fact, look at what it says in John chapter 5 in verse 14. After Jesus had made this man well, he finds him in the temple and says, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus is talking about something here that's beyond the physical healing something that's beyond what's specific to our physical realm, what's here and now on earth. I want you to look at a verse that is so powerful for one moment. John, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9. Listen to uh, Matthew chapter 9 as we consider the Lord Jesus and the writer of the gospel of John using physical events to communicate greater spiritual truth. This man that laid there at the pool of Bethesda had a great need. He laid there for 38 years. He says, I can't get into the water. I've got no one to help me. And every time I've tried, someone steps down in there before me. He had a great need. Physically, no doubt. But there's something that's going to be communicated here that goes beyond the physical. Jesus could do all the physical healing that he wanted, but it would never meet the greatest need of mankind. You have a spiritual illness. So do I. It's called sin. And the Lord Jesus is offering to you healing that goes beyond the physical to the much greater and spiritual need that is the wages of your sin which is death spiritual death listen to way, to the way this is written in matthew chapter 9 thinking of miracles thinking of what jesus is doing jesus went about matthew 9 verse 35 Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And so we say, praise God, he's done it. He's healed the people. What's left? They're healed. Hey, life is good now. We've got lots of people I know sitting here that have physical infirmities. It's a serious thing. Jesus is here. He's healed the multitudes, every single one of them. And so the people would say, you'd think, yes, that's it. Jesus would say, I've accomplished it. We're good. People are healed. Go on, enjoy life. Have fun. You feel good now. Go get a job. Make some money. Do what's good. But listen to what the writer says. Matthew 9 and verse 36 says this, but when he, that's Jesus, saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were sick and he couldn't heal them. No, that's not what it says because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. There is something greater Friends, brothers, sisters, there's something greater in life than the the satisfying the meeting of the physical needs. As wonderful as it would be, I'd love to be able to, to heal some of the illnesses that are here today. But Jesus can do something for you that is so much greater than physical healing. He can heal your soul. The Lord Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you some money so you can have the good life. I'll heal your sicknesses so you can feel good. That's not what he says. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. What kind of rest? Jesus would say this, rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. The Lord Jesus and the writer in the Gospel of John would use physical, real, historical events to communicate to us deeper spiritual truths. We have a man lying here, back to John chapter 5, who had an infirmity for 38 years. Some of you may have been carrying your infirmity for this long. I don't know. What an awful, awful, place to be by the way it says there were multitudes there that day did you catch that In in verse uh verse three great multitudes of sick people laid there what a scene of sorrow of depression here's a pool with five porches multitudes of people they can't see they can't walk they're withered they're lame. what a scene of sorrow, of sadness, of depression. It pictures for us a much greater scene of sickness and sorrow and sadness and defeat and depression. It is a picture of this world which First John 5 reminds us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is the scriptures, friends. These are not my words. These are the words of the scriptures. The picture here is immense. People lying around sick, helpless, and hopeless. But there was a certain man who had an infirmity 38 years. One of the things that we'll notice as we go through the gospel of John is that our God, the God of the Bible... Is a God of the individual. Here we have multitudes of people. He could have healed them all. No problem. He did it before. He did it in Matthew 9. He could have healed them all. But there was a certain man. That was there that day. Our God. Can save. He has all the can to save. But he deals with the individual. Don't ever think. That by being a part of a group, hey, you could join the multitudes out there wherever you want to join. Join the biggest church that you can find. It won't do you any good apart from a personal encounter with the God of heaven who deals with the individual. With the individual. Multitudes there that day. Hey, politicians love the multitudes, don't they? They want masses. They want masses. I'm sure some of you have your favorite politicians. How many of you get consistent individual attention from your politicians? Your favorites. Not many. How many of you ever get contact from your favorite politicians? What about performers? Performers love the masses too. Hey, multitudes of people. Pads my pockets if I'm a singer or a dancer or some type of artist. How many of you get personal attention from your performers? Consistent? At all? But the God of heaven, he cares about the multitudes, but he doesn't save the multitudes. He saves the individual. So you may go and join with any group, join with big masses of people. That'll never, ever, ever do you any good. In fact, it may just occupy your time in some religious system until it's too late. Our God, the God of the Bible, God the Son, as manifested in Jesus, deals with individuals. That's you. That's me. Have you come to the place of having personal interaction with the God of heaven. Hey, sitting here is good. I'm glad you're here to, to listen to the Word of God. But He's calling you. Come to me. Come to me. You can come and go. Here's the sad part about the multitudes in the life of Jesus. Most times, the multitudes went away unchanged but there was almost always some specific individual whose life was radically transformed. So in Luke chapter 8, a woman comes. There's multitudes pressing on Jesus. This woman wiggles her way up there, touches the hem of his garment, and she's healed. But of the multitudes, like the multitudes here, what's to come of them? I don't know. Doesn't seem much changed for them, but for that one individual who will come and acknowledge their place before God, which is exactly what this man is going to do, and receive the spiritual healing that he offers, there is a radical transformation. Later on in John 5, it will tell you that you can be translated from spiritual death, Into spiritual life. There is no greater transformation. Than the transformation. The translation. From spiritual death. Into spiritual life. You're an individual here today. Will you come to the Lord. Individually. Listen to what this man says. So. So Jesus asks him this question. Let me go back to the question. After a moment. So. Uh, chapter 5 and verse 7, the sick man says to Jesus, Sir, I don't have any man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. If you want an illustration of where we need to be spiritually before the Son of God to receive His healing, this is a perfect illustration listen to what the man says i have no man i've been here for 38 years i can't find a prime absolutely friendless i don't have a single person i'm assuming his legs weren't functioning right i don't have anyone who can get me up and get me into that water in time i'm hopeless And and when I've tried on my own, while I'm coming down, another steps in before me. Apparently, there was some type of healing property at times in this pool. Not going to get into that in detail, but apparently there was. But listen to what the man says. I don't have a man, nobody, to put me in. And I've tried many times, but before I can get there, someone steps in before me. This is a vivid illustration of the vast majority of the world's population, friends. Vivid illustration. Most people that I ask regarding things of heaven and eternal life will tell me something like this. Well, I'm doing as much good as I can, and I'm hopeful that my good will outweigh my bad and I'll receive entrance into heaven. Will you get there? I don't know, but I'm hopeful. I'm doing as much as I can. The one thing that, that was the greatest need of these people, of this man, was the one thing he could not accomplish. He couldn't do it. He had no man, and he couldn't do it. The law will never save you, friends. You can do all the good that you want. You can try as hard as you want to be a good person. You'll never, ever, ever be good enough. Like one preacher says, you won't even live up to your own expectations, much less God's. You're going to fall way, way, way short. It's a scene of helplessness and hopelessness. Back to verse 6 for just a moment. Jesus Asks him this question. Do you want to be made well? Ah. Oh, Jesus. He's been there for 38 years. Of course he wants to be made well. Of course he does. He's been, he's been trying for 38 years. What kind of a question is that? It almost seems cruel. Do you want to be made well? He's been there for 38 years trying to get into the pool. But it's a very, very valid question. There are many in our world who recognize their issues. Oh, they can tell you this habit of mine is killing me. I can't stand this about me. I I keep falling into this. I keep doing this. But Jesus is asking them, Do you want to be made well? Not can you. This is not the question. Jesus would say, I've got all the can if you've got the will. Do you want to be made well? I've met many, many, many people spiritually ill that do not want to be made well. John chapter 3 reminds us that there are many people that love darkness rather than light, that Jesus would offer to them spiritual light, spiritual life, but they're happy in their sin. I remember a man came through the doors here a few years ago, several years ago. He came through the doors and uh, was asking for money. Oh, he had a story like they all do, and I'm not demeaning them, but this was a young, strong man he was out of work, he had no money. So we give him some money, get him a bus pass. A few weeks later, he's back. I'm back in the same situation. I don't have work. Uh, we help him out a little here or there. Until a time came when one of our good brothers said, you want to work, do you? I've got a job for you. You come work with me. I've got a business. You know how long that lasted? A few days, maybe a few weeks. He said he wanted to work. He said he wanted a change of life. But the will was not really there. There was no true desire to really, really change. If you're going to come to the Lord, there is a a part to play for us. You're saying, I've got to do good things to get into heaven. No, but you've got to be ready to commit your will. To put your trust fully in him. To forsake whatever it is, your own efforts. Hey, the guy could have said, you know what? I'll wait for a man. It's been 38 years, but I'll wait and see. Maybe someone will come help me. I'll keep trying. Maybe I can get myself into that pool. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? It's a very legitimate question. Lots of people spiritually ill that really don't want to be made well. Well, this miracle after Jesus says to him rise take up your bed and walk as we read, he's ra- he's raised, he takes up his bed, he starts walking. The Jewish leaders come in all of their religiosity and they say, well, well, "It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath." No care, no concern for the fact that a man that was there for 38 years had been made well. They were just concerned about the Sabbath to the degree that they had made it, not God's Sabbath, but their religious rules that they had piled on top of the Sabbath. This man wasn't working. He wasn't selling beds. He wasn't bartering beds. He wasn't trading beds. He was simply carrying his bed. But religion will do something to people, something awful. One preacher called this whole text... The damning power of false religion. False religion will put you in a state of mind that is an awful place to be. That was these religious leaders. What are you doing carrying your bed? No concern for the healing of the man, only the concern for their religiosity, for the things that they had heaped upon the Sabbath. Now, we're going to just start sprinting to try to run through some of these things quickly. And I appreciate your patience up to this point. Verse 16 says this, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. Can I tell you something? I'm going to read Jesus' words here. This is a verbal atomic bomb. This is a verbal atomic bomb. Jesus would say to them, in response to their concern about the breaking of the Sabbath and encouraging this man to break the Sabbath in their minds, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Oh, you say, "I." what does he even mean by that? That's a little confusing to me. Well, what did they understand him to mean? Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. How did they interpret it? They interpreted it as a statement of equality with God. This was not just a statement of relationship, though it was God is my personal father, Jesus would say, but it was a statement of partnership. It would be something like me entering into a a fretful political conversation with some others and saying, hey, don't worry about it, guys. President Trump and I got this handled. This is like what Jesus was saying but on a much, much higher plane. For me to say that would immediately put me at the level of President Trump, as if we're working together. Jesus would say, my father has been working until now, and I have been been working automatically, putting himself in equality with God the Father. Many people will say, Jesus never said he was God. Why don't we just find somewhere in the scripture where Jesus just said, I am God, I am God, I am God. I want to suggest to you something to consider. Jesus' main purpose in revealing deity was not just to affirm his equality with God or to affirm his own deity, but was to reveal God. So for him to just say time and time again, I am God, folks, I am God. They would have said, who God? What God? Another God? Another God? So he didn't do that. But what he did do was he revealed who God is. See, the Jewish mindset was one God, one person. And what Jesus revealed to them was this. That no God, although he's one God, is found in three persons. So we don't just believe in, in Jesus as God. But we believe that Jesus is God, the son. There's a revelation being laid out here. Not just I am God, but this is who God is. He is my father. I am his son. We work in perfect harmony. That's what he'll start to say in these verses. We have total unity. It's a revelation of God. So what if he walked around? Lots of people have said, I am God. I am God. I am God. But Jesus wouldn't do that. But he would reveal God, and he would time and time and time again affirm his own deity, his own equality, with God the Father. That's exactly what he'll do in this chapter, revealing to them his equality, his partnership, his unity with God the Father. We don't have time to go through perhaps the best part of this chapter. I do encourage you as you read through John chapter 5. Would you come back out tonight and sit in small groups with us and we'll discuss some of these things tonight at 6 o'clock here? Because there's so much more here. The pinnacle of the chapter is not the miracle. That's the setting, but it's the sermon. Jesus is going to lay out to them his equality, his unity with God the Father. God has life. In me is life. All judgment has been committed to me, the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. There is so much more that could be said. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, which communicates to us the grandeur of who you are. We do see in you and in your Son, God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. And so we've come today and we wholeheartedly affirm to you, O God, our Father, that Jesus is indeed God, the Son. We bow the knee before Him here today. I trust that each one will do this in their own minds and their own hearts to commit their way to the Lord Jesus Christ. O God, what a blessing it is to know You. What a blessing it is to have Your Word, which reveals to us who You are. What a tremendous tremendous joy it is. We ask that you would help us as we part. We do commit our day to you, asking your help and blessing in Jesus' name.